You are listening to the Aging Starts Now podcast, where it's all about responding with confidence to the legal, financial, and personal challenges created by disability, unexpected illness, or simply aging in general. Join us weekly as elder law attorneys Tim Takis, Barbara McGinnis, Chris Johnson, and other members of the Takis McGinnis Elder Care Law Team talk about the tools, techniques, strategies, and services that will make the elder care journey easier for everyone involved. Get ready, because aging starts now. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Aging Starts Now. I'm Outreach Coordinator Dana Hinchel. A question that I often hear out in the community and when people call our office is, is a trust right for me? Well, today we're talking about trust with partner and attorney Chris Johnson. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Dana. Glad to be doing this. So what is a living trust and what are its benefits? So a living trust is a trust that you create during your lifetime. Basically, it's a trust that you sign and that trust is recognized immediately. And that's as opposed to a testamentary trust. And a testamentary trust is a trust that is in your will that really doesn't have any legal recognition until your will is taken through the probate process. And so the most common form of living trust and probably what most of our listeners are used to hearing in that context is a revocable living trust, which is kind of the most common of all the estate planning trusts out there. Okay. And so a revocable living trust, what are kind of the benefits of that? So when you're looking at establishing a revocable living trust, you're really asking yourselves, well, what's the purpose? What am I trying to do? And most often, clients who are establishing a revocable living trust are attempting to avoid the probate process. And for those who are unfamiliar, the probate process is the orderly court-supervised Uh, disposition of your assets after you pass away. Because when any of us pass away, people who are deceased can no longer own and hold property. So if you have assets, especially titleable assets, and they don't have an owner after you pass away, well, our society needs an orderly process to do that. And that's where we have the probate process. And so if you have a will, you take that will to the court, You ask that the will be accepted and that the estate be opened. And when they open the estate, now there is a new legal entity that has been created, the estate of John Doe or the estate of Jane Doe, that can own and hold the decedents, the deceased person's property. And then they appoint a personal representative. Many people are familiar with executor or executrix. We use personal representative here. And what that person does is that's like the CEO of the estate. They're paying the debts, settling up with creditors, making sure final arrangements are taken care of. And then when all that's done, they're able to make distributions from the heirs. Well, there are three real uh, headwinds regarding the probate process. The first is, it can be costly. So probate generally runs five, six, seven thousand dollars if people are charging a flat fee. Although I've heard uh, an attorney having quoted it as high as twenty thousand dollars, which absolutely blew my socks off. But we are in an inflationary period, and I think people are charging more and more. Uh, we certainly don't charge that amount, but I was stunned to hear that quote. So it can be uh, very pricey. 
it can be time consuming. And so by time consuming, when your loved one has passed away, you're going to need to find time between your grieving, making final arrangements and all of those things to meet with an attorney, provide the information they're looking for, which is generally pretty detailed. They need to know where all the assets are, how they're titled, et cetera, to, and make sure that the original will has been found and safeguarded. You also have to safeguard all the assets. And then what happens is going to be another month to get the petition drafted, get on the court's docket. And then if everything goes smoothly and you get on the court's docket, appear before the judge and the judge accepts the will and opens probate, well, now we have a four-month unwaivable creditor period. And so that's four months, 120 days that are the time must run to allow creditors to come forward and settle their claims with the estate. And then once that's done, you're looking at another month or two to get final distributions, distributee statements, and file closing documents with the court. So if everything goes perfectly, you're looking at the better part of a year. But the most important reason to avoid it is privacy. When you file a petition to open probate in the state of Tennessee by statute, you are required to list the name and address of all the heirs, both the heirs and the will, and the heirs at law, those that would have died if or would have received if the individual died without a will, and an estimated value of the estate. And all of that is a public record, and that's nobody's business. It can invite will contests where there's no, no reason to invite a will contest. Uh, it kind of puts a little bit of a target on your heirs' backs for nefarious actors. And so if we can avoid that public process, we like to, and that's where a revocable trust comes in because a revocable trust is often referred to as a will substitute. And the reason it's called a will substitute is because your testamentary intent, instead of being in your will, is preserved in your revocable trust. And what happens is the way that a revocable trust helps you avoid the probate process is by having it appropriately funded. If you have your home deeded into the revocable trust, if you have your assets payable on death or transfer on death to the revocable trust, that revocable trust is a legal entity that can own and hold property. And therefore, when you pass away, all of your assets are still owned by a, a, a legal entity. And because of that, now we don't need to avail ourselves of the probate system. Why? Because we already have a revocable trust that memorializes all this. So there's no creditor window. You still have to find your creditors and make sure they're settled up with. And so it doesn't avoid those kind of debts or whatnot, but you don't have to keep it open for 120 days. You can just reach out to them and settle things up. No so, oh, go so ahead. It invites people from coming out of the woodwork. I mean, you're paying for those debts that you're aware of, but you're right keeps people yeah. from just coming from out of nowhere saying so-and-so yeah, fraudulent claims or think that yeah. they can just take a, a shot at things. Absolutely. And so, and remember when you go through the probate process, you do make it easier to challenge. I, I joke, I was in court one day and you know, we had, I had the, uh, one of the children who was uh, nominated as the personal representative and there was another child and we were aware that they might not be happy with the way things were set up. But, what they did was they, they got noticed as they were supposed to, and they just showed up in court and the judge asked, you know, are there any objections? And they just stood up and objected. Um, and it was one of those, 
that was your plan sort of thing. I mean, they didn't really have anything to say after I object. They were, the judge asked them why, and they didn't. They just said, I disagree with it. Well, you, you can disagree with someone's last will and testament all you want. That doesn't give you any standing to challenge it. When you're looking at challenging a will, you're looking for undue influence or lack of capacity. Um, but because the forum was already there, the cost of entry was very low for that individual just to show up. And, and then the court, as they should have, afforded that person time, the opportunity to consult with an attorney and get counsel where I'm sure they were advised that there really wasn't anything to challenge at that point. But it delayed the process even further. Well, with a revocable trust, there is no court form. If they want to challenge the will, if they wish to come forward and say, oh, I think or challenge the trust in this case, they need to go hire an attorney. They got to show that attorney some reasonable grounds, some cause where they have a legitimate pleading. Then they have to go file a pleading with a court arguing to challenge this trust. And that bar of entry is a lot harder. Anyone who speaks with attorneys know it's not inexpensive. And so having to do all that work on the front end, it dissuades a lot of people from doing it. So you establish that revocable trust. It has your testamentary intent where everything you want to go. Now, the one thing about a revocable trust that really throws people off is, why am I still signing a will? Because after we sign our revocable trust, we immediately sign something called a pour over will in most instances. And people say, Chris, I thought we were doing all this to avoid probate. I say we are. However, we never want to have a single point of failure. And with a revocable trust, if there was one drawback, it is it only controls what the client puts in it, whether they deed their home, make a bank account payable on death, make stocks or bonds transfer on death. But you have to affirmatively make sure what we call those beneficiary designations are made. And so that pour over will, if you forget to deed a piece of property or you forget to transfer on death or payable on death, an, an account of some sort of financial account, it will catch that asset and then it'll pour it back over into your revocable trust. So your revocable trust will ultimately get funded. It's just a much more difficult process to do it and one that's easily avoided with a little work on the front end. Okay. So a revocable living trust, I'm hearing that it's changeable. It's not really for asset protection, but it is to avoid probate. And you just kind of explained why people might want to do that. Yep. And so and let me talk, the amendable changeable, that's one big thing for revocable trust. The client is in complete control. As my partner affectionately refers to it, and I always chuckle when she says it, she calls it the hokey pokey of trust. You put your right foot in, you take your right foot out. You can put in assets and take out assets, and they remain under your control. Now, the flip side is exactly what you said, Dana. There is no asset protection for the grantor, for the person establishing the trust of a revocable living trust. However, there can be some asset protection for the beneficiaries, and that's a big deal because most trust planning is looking down towards the future for some other group of people, what we would call the remainder beneficiaries in this instance. And we want to make sure if something bad happens in their lives, they are protected. Okay. So can trust like this help with the threat of incapacity? Because I know that when somebody has a dementia diagnosis, there's some fear that perhaps they may be making changes that if they were not experiencing brain change, they might not be making. Um, can a trust help with that? It absolutely can. That's a fantastic question. Uh, in fact, a trust can sometimes be a better tool than a power of attorney 
because the trust is a recognized legal entity and the banks, other financial institutions, they recognize trustees and so, and their authority. So if there's a trust account open and there are assets in that trust account and you go in as trustee, you can start working right away. So let's say the grantor who's typically the trustee of a revocable trust has somehow lost their capacity. Well, the revocable trust at that point, the trustee succession goes to the next, what we call the successor trustee. And so oftentimes that can be one of the children, especially if it's a single parent who's been widowed or divorced or something like that. And so what happens is now that child assumes the duties as trustee and they just start working, you know, in furtherance of the grantor's best interest. Whereas if you bring a power of attorney, the bank wants to do a, a full legal review, which they're well in their right to do. And, and we, we are very glad that they do that because they want to make sure all their I's are dotted and T's are crossed. But that can slow down the process instead of the trustee just showing up with immediate authority. Uh, and you get that continuity of control. And that is really, really, really crucial. Another thing, people have powers of attorney. And they think they have authority when in reality it's a springing power of attorney. And so not only does that power of attorney not effective until the principal loses capacity, but typically it requires a letter from one or sometimes two independent doctors verifying the loss of capacity. And that can just be time consuming to get. Uh, some doctors I think are uncomfortable writing those letters and I understand why they see it as a potential liability and I, I don't blame them for that. And so the trustee position it's continuous. So when that one individual loses capacity, now the successor trustee steps right up to the plate and immediately starts working. The financial institutions are very comfortable with that and it can make it much, much easier to deal with an incapacitated loved one. So kind of what I'm hearing too is if you have somebody who has multiple properties and you might be concerned that and that person, the grantor, has lost capacity. And you might be concerned with maybe the, the power of attorney selling off some of those properties. If the properties were in a trust and you were the trustee or a co-trustee, you have more control. Absolutely, as the trustee. Now, oftentimes, I worry, I never want to have a, uh, our clients listening to get overly worried about something. Very often in our planning, the power of attorney and the trustee, successor trustee are very much the same person. Uh, it's very common in planning. But yeah, the trustee would have the, the ultimate authority if the trustee has capacity and it's a trust asset. And so, uh, yeah, but, and I would, always caution people, as I tell all my clients, if you were ever worried that your power of attorney might do something like that, you have the wrong power of attorney. And so that's something that you want to look at. Most of my clients have heard me say at one time or another, when in doubt, leave them out. So if we, if we think that we have someone who might not, you know, fulfill that fiduciary obligation, uh, we should immediately look at replacing them because we never want to run into that scenario if we can avoid it. So, so once the grantor dies uh, in, an, in a revocable trust situation and the grantor passes, does the revocable trust then become irrevocable? It does. That's a fantastic question. It becomes irrevocable by operation of law because the only person with the authority to amend it or revoke it has now passed on. And now that testamentary intent, whether you wanted your stuff to go to kids in equal shares or charities or be distributed on some type of schedule, 
Now all of that is locked into the trust document and it is for the trustee to carry out those wishes. And although trustees typically have some discretion built in, at the end of the day, they lack the discretion to wholeheartedly just change what the grantor's uh, intentions were. And so, yes, that trust becomes irrevocable at death. Okay. And of course, so you you can have irrevocable trust while the person is living, though, too, correct? That's Absolutely. And so there are irrevocable trusts that are inter vivos and ones that are established during the lifetime. And unlike, uh, you know, I talked about the revocable being the hokey pokey. So, you know, think of an irrevocable kind of being like a lockbox. You're putting whatever asset into that lockbox, and then you are putting that lockbox in the control of a third party, oftentimes your child, sometimes a professional trustee. But when a parent puts like their home, one of the most common assets to put in an irrevocable trust, you're kind of putting it in a safe and you're saying, hey, child, hey, professional trust company, hey, someone else, you are now in charge of what's in this lockbox. So you get asset protection, but you give up control. You can't have it all. <laughs> and that, you can't have it all, Dana. And that's a great way to put it. And that's what I, that is exactly the balance that people are looking for. It is you're going to give up some dominion control, um, and you are going to gain the ability to preserve that asset for the long run. Uh, and so some clients are very comfortable with that. Some clients are not comfortable at all. And that's where it should be very clearly explained what's being given up, what isn't being given up. So a client themselves, because at the end of the day, the client is the ultimate decider. They need to understand the ramifications of taking these actions. And that's why we spend a great deal of time on education, both with our learning cafes and trust schools. But even in our just first meetings with our clients, any client of ours will tell you the first 30 or 45 minutes, sometimes first hour, is kind of an education because you need to understand what you're doing and why you're doing it before you make the decision that is best for you because ultimately whether or not to do an irrevocable trust that's a client decision right and of course in this business in our practice we think about asset protection looking through like a 10 care medicaid lens but an an irrevocable trust can provide asset protection against Creditors or, oh, or other? Well, not so if the creditors were not pre existing, uh, then yes, uh, creditors, you can't use a trust. I can't have someone sue me and then immediately put everything into trust. That would be a fraudulent conveyance. But if I put it in an irrevocable trust and then down the road, uh, I, I get sued in a personal injury suit down the road. I something bad happens to me. I file for bankruptcy. Uh, those types of issues. Yes, you have a great deal of asset protection. It's not just for Medicaid. A trust is one of the greatest legal instruments ever invented um, because of what it can do to preserve assets for the family and, and not lose them due to catastrophic events that you know we never know if and when they will occur. And we are running out of time, but I do have one last question about blended families. Of course, we're seeing more and more blended families here. And um, some people, you know, they come to those marriages, those second or third marriages with children from other marriages. And some of them want to say, hey, what's what's was mine goes to my kids and what's yours goes to your kids or I want to take care of you. But then after you die, I want what's left to go to my kids. Um, 
can can trusts help with that? They can absolutely help with that. <clears throat> and that is one of those things where you want everyone to be able to sit down around the table and agree on what the outcome is going to be. And then you build the plan to support what those clients' long-term goals are. For those that are contemplating a blended family, like everything else in this world, the earlier you plan, the better the result is going to be. And so financial security is just like security at your home. It's best done in layers. So at your home, you have locks on the doors. You might have a ring doorbell or security cameras. You might have a fence. Some businesses, you know, it gets even more with alarm systems and whatnot. Well, your personal life is the same way. And so let's say you're single, you're you're divorced, or you've been widowed or a widower, and you're looking at getting remarried. Getting a lot of this stuff done up front prior to the marriage will only strengthen that planning. And then I recommend for those uh, engaging in marriage, especially a second marriage, you know, when you're in your 50s or 60s or 70s, a strong prenuptial agreement uh, can really also further that. And prenuptial agreement really matters in family law, in the courtroom. Uh, But when it comes to tin care planning, we kind of have a little saying around here that tin care doesn't care about your prenup. And that throws some clients off sometimes. And so sitting down with uh, a good elder law attorney and, and often a good family law attorney, when you're looking at these things, look at these issues up front and solve them beforehand so you're not regretting the fact that you're locked into certain circumstances on the back end. And so proper prior planning always prevents poor performance. Great. Well, what I'm hearing is that trusts are not all the same and that they can be complicated, highly individualized documents. So it's important to seek out counsel to address your unique situation. You know uh, Perfect. Well, that's it for today's episode. Tegas McGinnis Elder Care Law is a life care planning law firm helping families respond to the legal and financial challenges caused by chronic illness or disability of an elderly loved one. Join us next week for another episode of Aging Starts Now. Thank you for listening to the Aging Starts Now podcast. For more information about today's show, visit tn-elderlaw.com, click on the free resources tab, and then click on Aging Starts Now. You'll find the show notes there. And while you're at it, why not check out all the free resources available at tn-elderlaw.com. Document downloads, the Tagus McGinnis blog, educational videos, informative articles, helpful links, a TV show, and more. It's all there free for the taking. If you enjoy listening to the Aging Starts Now podcast, please subscribe, rate the show, or leave us a review. It's easy to do on whatever app you use to listen. We would love your feedback on the show. Aging Starts Now. We'll be back next week with more candid discussions about challenges created by aging, disability, and unexpected illness. 